When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Before we get into today's episode, we are pausing new episodes from December 19th to January 6th for a little winter break for you and for our team. We will also have a very special episode, though, right smack in the middle on book release day, which is Tuesday, December 27th. We're so excited to share. So enjoy the break. Listen to the backlog of episodes. Have a fun holiday. Buy your copy of Financial Feminist. And we'll see you back here soon. Okay, back to the episode. Hello, Financial Feminists. Hello. Welcome back. I'm your host, Tori Dunlap. If you're new here, welcome. This podcast is feminist first with money as our medium. We are disrupting the financial education space. I almost I almost like threw up a little bit in my mouth with disrupting because you got to love uh tech bros have have taken this word uh, the taken the word disrupt and really went to town with it. It's in every fucking like pitch. They have commandeered this word to like describe anything they're doing ever. But we're actually actually disrupting the financial education space. We're talking about how money affects women differently and why and what you can do about it. So if you like the show, please make sure to subscribe, leave us a review. This is the biggest source of free financial content we offer. And positive reviews and subscribing wherever you get your podcast, wherever you're listening right now, is a great way to support us and our mission so we can help produce more of it. Okay, today's guests, good friends of mine. This is such an impactful episode. I know you're like, Tori, you say that every time, but like really though. Julian and Kirsten are authors of Cashing Out, Win the Wealth Game by Walking Away. They are also the creative voices behind the blog richandregular.com, hosts and producers of the award-winning video series Money on the Table, which is so good, and hosts of the Rich and Regular podcast. They are also uh, featured as experts, and uh, Kirsten shares a beautiful story in uh, my book, Financial Feminist, so you can also check them out there. Based in Atlanta, Georgia, their mission is to inspire better conversations about money. The couple has used frugal living, real estate, stock market investing, and their online business to build wealth and ultimately achieve financial independence. They paid off $200,000 of debt in five years, and their story has been featured on Good Morning America, The New York Times, Forbes, CBS This Morning, Market Watch, The Oprah Winfrey Network, and more. When they're not sharing stories about their experiences with money, they are parents to their son, Beau, traveling the world or searching for their next great meal. This episode, just a blast to record. I've been friends and colleagues with Kirsten and Julian for a few years now, and they are just incredible educators, but just good people. They're also, again, featured as uh, financial educators and experts in my book, Financial Feminist, and I think you're just going to learn so much from them. We get into their story of what cashing out means to them, how they define cashing out, how systemic barriers impact the wealth building opportunities for the Black community, and most importantly, we have a really candid conversation about capitalism, about how to achieve financial independence under capitalism in a morally upstanding way or as morally as possible. 
This episode is absolutely packed. We can't wait for you to listen. Let's get into it. so much for being here we offline just chatted for a half hour about the whole book writing slash publishing process and it's so nice to to have you i blurbed the back of your book and i it's such a good book we'll link it down below cashing out it's so good y'all but i always like to start conversations with fellow money experts by asking you what your first money memory was and if you both wouldn't mind sharing my first memory, money memory, was uh, with coins, like was with physical mem- money, which I know is uh, is dated because my son probably won't have a similar memory at all. But my dad used to come home, empty his pockets and put all of the coins in this box that he kept under his sink. And every once in a while, he would let us roll the coins and take them to the bank. And that's how we got like spending money. So I just remember my hands like smelling like a slot machine (laughs) all the time, touching all that money. Like it was very Scrooge McDuck. Wow. Um, (laughs) My first uh, money memory is is church. I remember being given uh, like an envelope of or like a stack of like envelopes and, you know, you write your name and the date on it and I'd have to put like a portion of my allowance into it. Uh, And I remember that was right next to my bucket of of uh coins uh which was an actual you know like those large it was like a well it was a mixed nuts bucket (laughs) but i repurposed it as my piggy bank and right next to that was my stack of like tithing envelopes oh so yeah you literally just brought like three different memories for me because we had the same thing where we had yeah like the the piggy bank and then probably every couple years we would roll it and i remember one year that was like the money that would go to our disneyland trip was like the money that was rolled. Same thing with tithing. I always wanted to put the envelope in the basket. My parents would like hand me their envelope and I'd put it in the basket. And then same thing is like with my vending machines, the the way we like stored the money was in a chocolate covered raisins from Costco, like plastic bin. So literally like, you just ran yeah. through my highlight reel as well. <laughs> it's so funny. Yeah, man. It's amazing how like tacit money used to be like, All of our memories are so sensory with it. And now I just don't think that's going to exist. That's a good point. Well, yeah. And the the thrill of finding a quarter or even a penny on the the street or on the road, like a sidewalk, that was was everything that made your entire life when you were a kid. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So your book is called Cashing Out, Win the Wealth Game by Walking Away. This title, and we were talking about it before, is obviously like very provocative in a really fun way. Can you talk about how you would define cashing out and how that kind of sums up both of your missions? Uh, Kirsten does a better job of, of defining it than, than, than I do, but uh, cashing out is really um, about us helping people redefine what winning looks like uh, in work and in money. And so right now, a lot of people define winning by, getting the big job, getting the big promotion. Uh, and unfortunately, only a few people really ever get a chance to do that. Uh, the rest of people just sort of end up feeling as if they're failing and they're constantly spending their lives trying to climb and get ahead. And what we're really asking people to do or challenging them to do is to redefine what winning looks like. And we define winning as being able to quit 
on your own terms at any time for any reason, aka cashing out, right? Uh, and I think that's especially important for people of color. It's, it's important for everyone, but I think given our experience uh, at work, uh, given all of the things that sort of get in the way of us climbing that ladder and earning our fair share, uh, we really have to redefine what winning looks like because the likelihood that we win in that traditional sense is very, very low. And so that's really what the title is about and all of the nuggets and wisdom and stories that we share in the book are really guiding people to hold on to that new belief. Yeah. And I, you were kind enough to, to be interviewed for my book as well. And that, that was my big mission with obviously our work at HFK and financial feminist is it's like money means options, right? You don't have to stay in a situation you don't want to be in when you have money. And we're not talking millions and trillions of dollars, just enough money to get by for a while until you find something else or enough money to leave that toxic job or toxic relationship. And I, you know, I know this as a woman and I've heard from, you know, followers and friends of mine who are people of color that it's, yeah, it's even more important and even more compelling of a reason because if, yeah, if you're in a situation you don't want to be in financially, what does that mean for your mental health? What does that mean for generational wealth or lack thereof? Like all of that is linked. Yeah. And I think it's, you touch on women, but when you talk about what it's like to be socialized as a marginalized person who was left out of the economic system for so long, whether you're a woman or a person of color, there's a lot of these stories that we just never heard. The stories that we tell ourselves, the meaning that we make of certain situations is deeply rooted in oppression, whether it's racism, sexism, ageism, ableism, whatever boogeyman-ism you want to pick that you are socialized to believe that you don't have any options or at best you have like one or two and neither one of them are good. And so financial literacy and, and this work that we're all doing is really about kind of advancing the conversation and getting people to realize that like this is a new world with new rules and a new playbook that requires you to think differently and act differently if you want to feel like you're not stuck all the time. So you're talking about new world, like what, what shifts have you seen? Because you, I remember you guys have been creating content. What, what year did you start? Was it 20, 2017, 2017? Yeah. yeah. So I started in 2016. So similar time, I've seen a lot of changes and obviously the world's seen a lot of changes in that time period. What, what for you has shifted during the last, let's give it five years? Um, a lot of things, but I'll tell you the one that is really at the forefront of my mind these days. Um, and it's, it's tech, tech illiteracy. Um, one of the biggest things, and, and I used to just struggle with, with, with this, with respect to like the older generation, but the more that I dug into it, the more I learned about how pervasive it is. You start to realize that this is actually an issue that's affecting people of all ages, all walks of life. Um, and, and unfortunately, uh, it, it has really detrimental impact on our earning potential and obviously our wealth building potential. Um, but when we talk about like, again, like asking people to think differently about success, oftentimes it's like, well, I need to make more money. Right. And it's like, all right, well, great. Well, here are some industries uh, that you should explore. And tech is always like at the top of the industry. And it's like, yeah, but if you don't have the skill set or the comfort levels to make that pivot, you're sort of stuck, right? Uh, even if we're talking about like exploring entrepreneurship or building a side hustle, a lot of those things will involve tech. You have to be comfortable, um, you know, sort of creating in some way or adding value in some way. And again, there's a big hump that we're learning a lot of people have, right? Which again, creates an opportunity for entrepreneurs, people who want to teach and help guide those people along the way. 
but that takes some time and all of those things. So I think the biggest thing that we, and money, mm-hmm. I think the biggest thing that we've seen in the last couple of years is, is not just sort of the gap in tech, but also how much quicker tech is evolving, right? Yeah, the, the pace, pace of change. The pace of change just in the last five years, I think is a lot faster than it was when we started. Oh, right? absolutely. You could start a platform and know that it's going to be there. It's going to pretty much stay the same. Like, I mean, even if you think about like Instagram in year one, like the the num- the level of in- of innovation that, that they would roll out now, it's like every other month, you know what I mean? Something's happening. And so uh, it's a lot to keep up with. Uh, there are a lot of intermediaries, sort of interfaces and all of these things that you have to keep up with. Uh, and as a result, I think a lot of people are being left behind. And so that's just one way to look at it. But even in a broader sense, if we're looking at just the rise of AI uh, and automation and the impact that that's going to have on employment, uh, which unfortunately disproportionately impacts people of color, uh, you know, all of these things are, are, are really kind of threatening. And so for us, um, when we think about financial illiteracy, we kind of think about it the same way as we think about tech illiteracy. Even though we sort of live in the financial space, we also live in a fintech world. So the two are kind of integrated. You really can't talk about one without talking about the other. But I think on a behavioral, and maybe it's related or not, but like on a behavioral basis, what I've seen, the shift that I've seen is kind of this inability to think long term yeah. or a struggle to think long term. It's like we are so caught up in immediacy and short term thinking and looking at like a two to four week horizon versus a five to 10 year horizon. And that is such a fundamental skill when it comes to investing, when it comes to role modeling, to mentorship. It's like you got to be able to imagine, envision a you 10 years from now, that is very different. And like the easiest way to do that is to look back 10 years, like look at some pictures, look at some photos and be like, you know what? I did change. Like, I still feel like me, but I'm different. And the same needs to happen looking forward. You need to recognize that like, Lord willing, you'll still be here in 10 years and you'll have a different set of needs. You might be tired. You might be, you might have a family. You might have other obligations that now conflict with this career ambition of yours. And so setting yourself up to take care financially of the laziest version of you or a different version of you is something that people have to learn how to do because they're not thinking about it. They're just thinking about like the bills I have this month, Mm -hmm. the job that is listed on the site right now versus the jobs that will be listed or that are coming based on larger trends. And so it's a it's a it's a shift that getting people to kind of zoom out a little bit to understand what where we are is has been a challenge. Well, and one thing you we've talked both on and offline about this over the past couple of years, us three is like, I think the, the literacy part is something that just is presented as the solution all the time. Right. Is it's like, Oh, the reason kids aren't saving money is they weren't taught this in schools. And if we do financial literacy in schools, everything's going to be better, which one, if we were to do that, who's going to teach it? What's the method that's going to be taught? you're going to have different, you know, elements of yeah, what is taught, how it's taught, depending on race, depending on funding, depending on all of those things, right? So that's not perfect. And in addition, it's kind of the the easy just like quick band-aid fix of just like, oh yeah, we'll just do financial literacy. And again, we've all talked about, we've talked about together that that's not enough. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. So I'll use the same framework that we just said, like what we think has changed just in the last five years. I think five years ago, you could have said there actually isn't enough programming. You could have actually legitimately Which is not, said- It's not wrong, right? It is true that like no, right, there needs correct. to be more education. Mm-hmm. And you certainly could have said that 
five years ago. And you could have said there aren't enough books or there's not enough representation. There's not. You could have said there's not a lot of those things. But what have we seen over the last five years? Well, you've seen a lot. We've seen state, you've seen uh, film. We've seen a number of books. We've seen programs. We've seen media companies. Uh, media companies. We've seen uh, growth in, in, so there's different points TikTok. of entry, right? <laughs> so education isn't really uh, nearly as much of an issue. And to your point, if that were the one-stop, one-button, easy-button solution to sort of help lead people onto the right track, then what we would also be seeing is like a huge shift in terms of wealth or saving rate or any of those things. We haven't seen that, right? Well, we did when our backs were against the wall in 2020 when everything was closed, right? Like that proves the point that people know how to stop spending when they're scared enough, right? Like when you think there's a virus out there that's going to come get you and everybody's locked down, people can save 38, 40%. Like that's what it proved. But then as soon as everything opened up, we went back to our old habits. Well, it's also scarcity mindset too. It's, it's not like I want to build a life for myself and for my community and uh, money is abundant. And I am like, it is, I'm not going to have enough money. And like, I don't want anybody, nobody physically can live in a scarcity mindset for a long period of time. Like your brain will literally, your brain will break down. Right, right, right. That's exactly what we were taught as a woman, as a person of color, as a marginalized identity. You were taught that you need money, but there's not enough of it for you, right? So like, it's not a process of learning about money for a lot of us. It's unlearning all that other shit that keeps us putting ourselves in our own way, right? It's unlearning the idea that money is a scarce resource. It's unlearning the idea that you're capable of doing hard things, even if you struggle at first. It's unlearning the idea that your voice is somehow less valuable because Mm -hmm. somebody didn't invite you to a table or because you don't have a title. It's unlearning all that stuff. And that's what unlocks true financial literacy, which to me is more of a relationship with your money versus all these rules that they try to teach you in school that only apply to like near perfect situations. Or balancing a checkbook, which who does that anymore? And financial literacy does not solve black people getting shot in the streets or uh, healthcare access to abortion being overturned. Like, and those are both financial issues because every issue is a financial one. So like financial literacy, yes, more is needed, but also that doesn't solve really many, if any, systemic issues. So it's like it has to be coupled. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I'm happy to hear you say that because, you know, one of the things that I think really um, separates us from a lot of other creators in the space is that we don't really double down on education. And that's not to knock it, but it's to say that box is already checked. There's plenty of education options available for you. I spend and I'm far more interested in exploring culture and social norms because more more than anything else, I think that's really what shapes our behaviors. That's what shapes our habits. That's what shapes our belief systems. And so uh, I'm far more interested in exploring that and helping people see how those things are shaping the way that they think and what they believe versus trying to help them or instead of trying to be a human a glossary for them. Yeah. <laughs> I, was thinking. I learned, you know, I love school, obviously. Like, I loved going to school. I learned a lot. But I think in terms of, like, how to be a good person, the actual, like, life skills around money, I didn't learn that at school. I learned that from my parents, from watching my parents. I learned that from fucking up in college and, like, maybe spending too much money somewhere or, you know, like, I learned, I was going to say on the job, but, like, you learn those things by doing them. And so it's like, I can't, you know, when I took pre-calc in high school, I learned everything I needed to learn from the test, 
for the test. And then I drained it all because I didn't need it anymore. And financial literacy for a 16-year-old is good in theory. But I, as a 16-year-old, was not managing much money, more money than like $100 occasionally. So like all, you know, you explaining to me what a Roth IRA is when I'm 16, I don't give a shit. It doesn't matter to me. (laughs) So like, I think that that's the other thing too, is it's like, yes, teach it in schools. It's like my sex ed in school, one, I went to a Catholic school, so I barely got any. And two, it's like, that wasn't great. Like... (laughs) So if you're also going to teach, if like the equivalent of you teaching me how to use a condom is like how to balance a checkbook, not, it's not going to be good. <laughs> like, it's not going to be good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, the way that most finance content is created, it's more like teaching abstinence as a form of sex ed. And it's like, that's not sex ed. <laughs> no, that's so, that's the scarcity mindset, right? The, the, oh gosh, you just blew my mind. No, but that's so true, right? It's that's the Dave Ramsey thing of like, don't spend money ever. Don't have sex ever. <laughs> and ever. look where that got everybody. <laughs> and if you do, just have a little bit. Right, right, right. <laughs> what? <laughs> just the t- <laughs> oh. <That's> tip. <laughs> it doesn't count. It's just the tip. <laughs> Is, I'm is, in the dock and leave. <laughs> okay, I want. No, <laughs> I think one of the things we have to grapple with in in this going back to how we started in today's economy in today's world is what does it look like to learn, right? Yeah. Like so many of us have this fixed mindset of like sitting in a classroom or going to a traditional college or going to get a financial certification. When really it's understanding that a lot of our actions, our behaviors, our thoughts are are driven by things that we've picked up along the way. And when you recognize that, that's when you start to do the work of changing your environment, changing those inputs, changing your your timeline, if that's what gets you thrown off track to make sure that it's aligned to your larger goal, because that's how people learn. That's actually how they learn. Well, and if you can correct me if I'm wrong, if I remember, I don't have any official financial certification and I don't think either of you do either. Right. No. And I think no. I, I would, I've been wanting to talk to somebody about this and you two are perfect for this. Like I, so many people will like over the past couple of years have asked me like, are you, are you a CFP? Right. Are you sort of a certified financial planner? Are you a financial advisor? And the only people that really ask that question are like, men in their 40s and 50s who I like don't care about anyway <laughs> right and i think weirdly what's happened is um having some of those certifications at least with millennials and gen z actually makes it more suspicious like i've found that like weirdly having like a you know a very specific qualification when it comes to money puts you in a system that uh, in part caused 2008, right? Or in part has led to this this huge wealth gap. And I'm wondering if you think the same or if you have come up against the same sort of criticism of like, oh, you're a financial coach or you're a financial expert. Like, what are your certifications? Yeah, <laughs> one million percent. So the story that I always share is um, I, I remember going to uh, my barber and for men, especially black men, like your relationship with your barber is like very intimate, right? So um, I remember moving uh, and then I stopped going to him and then I had to like find a new dude. It was like, all right, man, you know, let's try this thing out. 
Um, but every now and then, just like, you know, I want that old thing back. So I went to go and I went back to my barbershop and he'd seen some of the things that we were doing online. And he was just like super proud of me. And you were just sort of talking about money, you know, just talking shop and locker room, barbershop talk. And I asked him, um, I'm just being real. Like, this is what the barbershop is. No, but locker, and so locker room st- now has a whole Donald Trump. Like, oh, I know. Yeah. And I know, I, I want to clarify, <laughs> I know you don't bad. mean that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but like, so we're in the barbershop and we're talking about money and he starts asking me a couple of questions and I asked him, well, what are you invested in? And he was like, oh man, shit, tampons. And I was like, what? And he was like, tampons, man, because you know what? No matter what happens, uh, a woman is always going to have tampons. I was like, all right, first of all, like that's. <laughs> Like That's he owns like Tampax stock? Like, Is that what he was saying? Sexist. I have no yeah. idea. I have <laughs> yeah. no idea. I didn't ask any further. I didn't ask any further because I was just like, okay, you're because what you're validating to me is someone that you trusted shared this insight with you at a very early age, and you've carried this story along. This man is like 50 years old, right? So here I then come in. It was like, well, actually, right. <laughs> Insert like dick. Well, S and P five hundred. Insert every anything I say after that is gonna. I'm gonna sound like a dick, right? And I'm talking about McKinsey studies, and I'm talking about data, and I'm talking about index fund investing, and all these things. And it goes in one ear, and out the other, right? And so, my comment uh, in response to what you were sharing is, I've learned through that story and through literally hundreds of conversations that when you lead with data, when you lead and present yourself as uh, the expert, um, or as someone who has authority over someone else, like it really makes people uncomfortable, and it actually makes that sense of insecurity worse, which gets in the way of them learning or even empowering themselves. Mm-hmm. And so, I've actually made a conscious decision not to pursue certifications because relatability is far more impactful mm-hmm. than credibility mm-hmm. or expertise, as defined by the industry. I, I believe I won't get the story or the insight or the truth of what's really at the yes. heart of these people's issues if I'm constantly presenting them as a teacher. The last thing, or the other way that I say it is, no one wants to have a beer with like their teacher. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> you want to have a beer with your peer, someone that you can talk to, someone that you can share your insights with that are far, like uh, issues that are far larger than just like, I don't know what this thing means, right? It's like, what are the things that are shaping your decisions? And so I need access to those stories if I really want to impact the people that we're trying to reach. Um, and yeah. so that's that's why I share that story. And, that, and to your point, that has been our experience, where it's like when you lead with the data, when you lead with expertise, people don't really respond nearly as much or you're not nearly as effective as when you are presented or just no pressure and just sort of relating to people on and a they, human level. I want to say they lie, but that's a harsh word, but they definitely they like spin the truth a little of bit. Course. People lie to experts all the time. You of think course. about the last time you were at the doctor. Of course. And you got to answer the question, like how many how much- drinks do you have a week? And it's like, well, three to four. Yeah. <laughs> a night. <laughs> how often do you work out? Yeah. Last, last night. <laughs> right. <laughs> do you smoke? It's like, well, no. it depends. <laughs> like what are we talking about? <laughs> But like people lie to experts all the time. And that's not the relationship we wanted to have with our audience. We're really trying to build something sustainable and a community and and a a group that that is built on trust. And it's like, we didn't want that to be like the 
you know, the foundation. Well, it is about credibility, right? Because I want to be clear, like, don't take advice from just anybody. But like, you guys, I have established credibility in other ways, right? Book deals, uh, our information, our media appearances, our awards, right? Like we've established credibility somewhere else. And I want to tell you a funny story too. So I was on the Today Show a couple months ago. And apparently they introed my, my mom watches every day. And so apparently she saw them like intro my segment on the day before. And they were like, TikTok finance star shares her whatever. And apparently I love her. But like Savannah Guffrey was like, oh, yeah, because I get all of my financial information from TikTok. And like I rolled it. And I'm like, because that's the criticism I get a lot, too, is it's like, oh, it's it seems it's like less legitimate, especially TikTok, where it's like, oh, isn't that cute in TikTok? And I'm like, I am going where people are. I am creating accessible content for this thing that's very inaccessible and intimidating where people are already hanging out. Why wouldn't I do that? Why wouldn't I use a platform that is more accessible and also where people already are than trying to reinvent the wheel or trying to be like jargon hoity-toity, this is very serious and should be taken very seriously. Yes, yes. Right. Yes, right. that's what smashing the patriarchy means. It means de-hierarchizing. <laughs> I made that up. De-unhierarchy. No, I got you. <laughs> Removing hierarchy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't de-hierarching. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's a word, but we got you. De-hierarchization. De-hierarchization. <laughs> so your book again, titled "Cashing Out." I would love to have you both share what cashing out actually looked like in your own life. First, what was the moment where you're like, I, I need out? Second, how'd you prep for it? And third, what was that moment of actually cashing out? What have, what have you been able to do with that? Uh, so I cashed out first in the summer of 2018. Um, and it was really after uh, like years of feeling really disillusioned about uh, what the job was doing, uh, what we actually stood for, but then also just seeing uh, bias play out in very real time. Um, you know, there was a point where I was the typical corporate loyal person. I described myself, you know, uh, as this person, like this is who I worked for. I was super duper proud of like what the work that I did. My father had worked for the company years before. And so it felt like a part of who I was um, until shit got real. And, you know, they started, uh, company was hurting a little bit, which led to downsizing. Then it just became a very toxic, uh, dog eat dog kind of environment where everybody was out for themselves. Um, I survived the first couple of, uh, layoffs and actually got promoted as a result of it. But it was one of those BS promotions where you get promoted. We're not going to give you any more money, but we're going to give you an opportunity to prove yourself to do the job that you've already been doing for three years. So did that. Um, and then the final straw for me was when I had a manager who was um, hired above me who was completely clueless. Uh, she had no idea uh, what she was doing, and she knew that things were failing, but she wanted to fail with people that she was comfortable with. And so she really set me up and tried to hit me with a one-two punch to try to get me out of here. Um, and instead of me sort of accepting this sort of mistreatment and, quite frankly, bullying and racist behavior, I said, you know what? I don't, at that point, I don't really need to deal with this. Like I I was, you know, our son was one years old. I was losing sleep. Like I was losing more sleep due to stress from work than I was trying to be a supportive partner or, or, or parent to my son. And um, like, I mean, literally I could not lower my heart rate. I developed like this sort of, you know, the eye twitch when you're super stressed out. 
Uh, I was gaining weight, like all these physical symptoms and, and mental and emotional issues were sort of popping up. And I realized like, wait a second, like I'd been on this road to financial independence from, from at that point, like eight years. We'd paid off our mortgage in 2017 on Kirsten's birthday. Um, at that point, we were literally, literally saving like more than half of our, our income. Uh, we had uh, a rental property uh, and the property that we were in, we were going to convert into our second um, debt-free rental. We were thinking about launching Rich and Regular, but we weren't quite there yet. But at the time, we'd already launched it. It was 2018, and we were seeing so much great momentum, and we were learning about this new creator economy. And I was like, why am I breaking my neck to try to make something happen over here when, one, I don't need to accept this kind of treatment, and two, what would my life look like if I decided to just pour all this energy into- And skill. And skill into my own ideas and into my own Well, you're, you're building somebody else's house as opposed to building your own. Correct, exactly. correct. Exactly. And so that was the the, the trigger for me uh, was to, to to be the person that I described on LinkedIn. And I always tell that to people all the time. Do you believe that, that you're that person or not? <laughs> um, and I had to ask myself that question and say, yeah, let, let's see what happens. And I think at least by my standards, I've fulfilled uh, that that mission. Mm-hmm. And then Kirsten decided to follow suit a couple of years later. Yeah, in 2020. So it was about 18 months, almost two years later. And it, my reasons were kind of twofold. One, he had the nerve to be like super happy oh, as an entrepreneur. He was spending his days writing at the Whole Foods and yeah. like Going enjoying our neighborhood. And great. like it was he. Yeah. And so like there was a gap between our relationship. There was a there was tension in our relationship because I would come home wanting to vent about office bullshit, which is how we kind of built our relationship. So many relationships kind of function around misery and 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 being like, yeah, commiserating in that. And it just sounded like a foreign language to him when I would talk about like she didn't even respond to my email like it just sounded like <laughs> what like, are you I'm talking good, about man. He's like, Peace signs yeah <laughs> like that's like, babe don't worry about it it's like what do you mean don't worry about it <laughs> like yeah so that was part of the issue was just the tension that it was creating or the space that it was creating because we lived in two completely different worlds I was still very stuck in a scarcity mindset I had this identity around being very proud that we were living off of my income and I had kept getting promoted. And like, it was, you know, I, I had, I had a sense of pride of being like, I'm a strong modern woman who, you know, retired her husband or whatever, <laughs> whatever language you want to use. So that floated me for a while, but then there was a reorg and I got placed in a different team. And so I had done all this work to pick this exceptional boss and like set myself up for really flexible work. But then the company restructured as they do. And I got under someone who was, again, clueless to the business that I was running internally. They demanded a lot. They were micromanager. I had to be on far more meetings. They expected me to be in the office at this time and leave after this time. They wanted me to manage my team a certain way. And that's when I started asking myself different questions. So instead of like, are we financially prepared? What are we going to do for money? It's like, will making this leap make me a better wife, a better mom, a better sister, a better friend? What is this job that I'm in teaching me? Like, what? who is it teaching me to become? Is it teaching me to become somebody who just sits in scenarios that aren't ideal forever and ever because of whatever reason I'm telling myself? So I started asking myself different questions. And uh, I remember telling Julian, like, I think I'm ready. Like, I think I'm ready to put in 
my notice and he was like hell yeah like <laughs> it's about time i've been waiting on you so <laughs> so that's kind of it, it was it was a it was a number of things it was like there were things that were circumstances that were happening outside of us and then there was like an internal shift within us to decide like actually i think i don't have to do this like i don't think i have to do this anymore and that decision was so instant and it changed everything yeah and i think what you're calling cashing out I would probably call financial independence, right? Is it's like the ability to, yeah, again, have any choices you want. And I'm listening to both of these and I did the same thing, right? I was in toxic situations where I was like, nope, don't want to do this anymore. Built the thing on the side to the point where I could quit. Some people can't do that, right? Or for some people, maybe they actually like their job, right? Maybe they feel they're compensated well. How can we def- define cashing out in our own lives besides just the now nah, I'm done. I'm going to go work for myself. Like are, for you guys, do you feel that like there's other definitions for cashing out? Yeah. I, I think that's why we created the like cashing out as like this ongoing process versus, versus some outcome. Like typically when people think about financial independence, especially if you're goal oriented or numbers oriented, ambitious, right. you tend to be, yeah, you tend to be outcome focused. Like when I hit this number, that's when I'm financially Or when I'm debt free versus cash. Like we, we interviewed yeah, the debt free yeah, guys yeah. who literally paid off their credit card debt and then went it back into credit card debt after because they didn't have the habits of like, how do we make this sustainable? They were just like, okay, we're debt free, yay. And it's like, they didn't have what happens after that. They didn't have that. Yes. And you you also see this with emergency fund savings. Like people work hard to save that emergency fund, but then they're pissed and they beat themselves up because an emergency happens and they got to use it. And it's like, well, yeah, that's that's the (laughs) point. And so the point of cashing out is to really focus on outcomes. The book kind of goes over what we call these rituals, which is like an ongoing practice. There are some rules, like I don't like rules in general, but there are some evergreen financial rules, things like spend less than you make, always consider inflation, things that these are hills that we're willing to die on to say, you know what, this is likely going to be pretty tried and true advice for the next couple of generations. But then there are these rituals, these moments where you're supposed to check in with yourself and ask yourself certain questions to make sure that things haven't changed. It's not like you know, financial literacy is not like set it and forget it. We tend to think that like it's very similar to a college degree where it's like, oh, I learned calculus back in, you know, freshman year. Instead, it's an ongoing relationship that you have to keep asking yourself different questions to make sure that the way that you're spending your time, investing your money, your strategy, your diversification, whatever, is aligned to the life that you still want. Well, in the relationship piece too, again, we talk about that all the time, like defining it as a relationship, right? And any relationship, whether that's parent to child, partner to partner, friend to friend, coworkers, like that relationship is going to look different over time. And if you phone it in, it won't work. <laughs> like it will not work. So your relationship with your money and your money's relationship to you will grow and change. And Correct. also we call it financial self-care here at Her First Center K, but like it needs to be maintained and it needs to be checked in on regularly <laughs> or else to your point, like yes. it's not going to work. Yeah. And a lot of us are avoidant. We're conflict avoidant. Again, these are not things that like I'm saying as like a, a, a negative. This is how we were conditioned to be. This is how we were taught in small ways and big ways from the time we were little yeah. up until now to be avoidant. And so like when there is a trade-off that needs to be made and there's always a trade-off that needs to be made within your budget, within your finances, within your prioritization, 
we just avoid it. We just hope it'll go away instead of like actively getting in that thing and like engaging with it and welcoming it. Like to me, financial independence and financial freedom is the point where you start to welcome a little risk in your life. You start yeah. to welcome a little a little emergency that allows you to think quick and move money and figure out like what are your options. It's like doing a crossword puzzle, but with your mm. finances. And that takes the edge off of it when you can see it as a creative pursuit or a... Um, just a, a, a challenge. challenge versus like this that. thing. Almost <laughs> like you're versus... married. <laughs> 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 you spend a lot of time to get. No, I love it. <laughs> Do I rant a lot? <laughs> yeah, I, it's not a thing that like determines your moral worthiness. It is like yeah. a thing that you can play with. Like, let's be playful up in this. I almost said hope. <laughs> you can say whatever. You I guess want I can it. on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's be playful in this house. <laughs> Okay, I want to take a, it's a very hard shift. Um, I've interviewed you about this previously, not on the podcast, but you don't know the, I mean, you know the stats over and over. I don't need to tell you again, but we know statistically black families have less generational wealth. They're paid less. They're also among the most underbanked populations. Underbanked meaning either unbanked, meaning they don't have a bank account or don't have access to a bank account. Underbanked meaning that they're not taking full advantage of the banking services or their bank is like, too far out of reach. So what struggles are you seeing that are facing the black community when it comes to finances? Besides, I mean, like racism, obviously, where is the traditional financial education missing the mark? Solve racism for me, please. <laughs> <laughs> where, where, where's traditional finance missing the mark? I mean, I think for one traditional finance advice does not include the black tax. So again, this focus on rules, always do this, never do this, doesn't apply if, you know, the, the rules are different for you, right? So traditionally, real estate might be a good investment. But if you buy real estate in a black neighborhood, because that's where you can afford or that's where you prefer to be to send your children to school, the likelihood that your real estate is going to be valued at the same level as a white counterpart across town is rare. And even if you do all the right things, even if you buy that big, beautiful house in a white neighborhood in great school system, if you get the wrong appraiser, you're fucked. We talked about that, I think, episode four uh, yeah. with Tiffany Alicia. Literally had that experience where, you know, she's a black woman, financial expert, and had her house appraised. I think she said like $300,000 less. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> We're going to look back at this time and be like, yo, why was this acceptable? Right? Like it's the same way I look back at my grandmother. My grandmother just turned 90 last year or this year. And she was born on a sharecropper field and she was just so happy to be there. Like mm -hmm. she liked going to the field. She tells me the story. Like she used to cry when her dad would leave her back at home. She didn't know any better. She didn't have anything to compare it to. Right. So when we look at the stats today and we're dis they're dismal, black women making 67 cents to a dollar, white women, women in general making 80 something cents to a dollar, you start to like realize like this shit makes absolutely no sense and it doesn't have to be this way. And so I think in the interim, what personal finance advice needs to be doing is selling us like, yo, financial independence, these aggressive savings rates, these, you know, big goals, this push that we're trying to. To, to get y'all to, to sign up for is really just to remain on parity, right? Like, yes, 
the traditional advice is to save 10%. But when you make 40% less, you got to save 30%. You got to get a side hustle. You might need to start a business. You might need to look at a different type of investment. And it doesn't do that. Like in, instead, it defaults to it being personal finance advice, defaults to the easy, clean math that comes with being at the top of the social food chain, so to speak, right? You don't encounter nearly as many hurdles or barriers as you would if you were a woman or a marginalized person. Yeah, this is the third time that we're going to reference calculus. I don't know why, but literally in our book, we talk about um, like the math being simple, but Black life isn't. It just isn't that simple, right? Yeah. And so the math is the same. You're right. It's not as if compounding interest works differently for people of color or of women than anyone else. But there are uh, forces outside of the math, right? There are all of these other things. You talked about the, all of the boogeymen, uh, all the other bad isms out there that are just impacting uh, our, our lives. And, and that's really where things get a little bit complicated. Uh, so yeah, I think it's, it, it's, it's, it's really, really difficult. And I think as people who, you know, I would consider us to some extent uh, leaders uh, in, in the space uh, with respect to that community, sometimes it almost feels like a, like you're, there's that cliche scene in a, in a Marvel movie where there's a train that's running off the tracks and you're like, you know, standing there, whether you're a Hulk or Batman or whatever it is, and you're trying to stop this thing before it falls off the track and it's, you're just getting beaten up and tattered. But this thing is moving really, really fast. And like, you know, wealth decline and wealth inequality, like is a massive, massive and complicated thing. What we're trying to do is, is not be the superhero, actually, because like, I'm not, I'm literally not a superhero. But what I can do is as someone that's on that train with you would say, all right, well, what can we do? Like there's this much runway. Look, there's an escape route up here. There's our options over here, which will require us to think a little bit differently. We might need to tap into some bite size of courage to sort of move a little further to maybe delay this thing, give us some time to think, right? So that's the way that we kind of think about it um, a bit more creatively. But the reality is like policy got us into this shit. Policy is going to get us out of it. Mm -hmm. One of the things I struggled with most, I struggle with most in my work and specifically with writing my book is it was, I don't like capitalism, right? Like I I don't, I don't want to win capitalism because that means deep suffering for somebody else, right? I've, I've exploited somebody, right? If I, if I have billions of dollars, I've, I've probably exploited somebody, but I also can't afford to lose capitalism because that means deep suffering for myself and my family and my community. And I imagine as Black people, you feel that 10 times harder. How do you reckon with that? Because I'm struggling with it too. My, I mean, my answer is like, I have to teach you how to how to get your groceries and pay your rent. And then once you're taken care of, then we fuck the system up. But like, I also don't want to participate but you kind of have to unless you're going off the grid in Alaska somewhere and getting a Discovery Channel show. But like that's like that's it, right? Is it's either like you have to participate and hopefully I guess do the less harm, the least harm you can. I, what are your thoughts with it? Because it's something I've deeply struggled with. I struggle with it. Like Kirsten will tell you, like and we both do. But I think like I like it's it's like in my nature. Um, it, it and it, I've always been that way because I came from the mud. You know what I mean? Um, the way that I think about it is the same way I think about if uh, I were climbing a mountain, um, even if it's just like one of them fake mountains at like a rec center or something like that. If you're climbing a mountain and you try to strap on like a couple weights on your back, you tie some things to your ankle, 
It's really, really hard. There are other ways to do this, right? You could say, you know what? I trust that you're going to be good where you are. I'm skilled. I'm able. I have resources. I'm probably best suited to climb this mountain. But when I get up there, I'm going to use my resources to do something. I can throw a rope down. Shit, I might be able to rent a helicopter. I might be able to, you know, write something and send it back down to you, right? But like, I think too many of us members of marginalized groups are, are afraid of sort of losing that point of connection, right? Because the higher you climb, the further away you well, get the guilt, from your community. The guilt. Of 100%. Survivor's guilt. I call it success guilt, right? It's something we struggle with. But it's really just helping people like us to redefine what help looks like as well. It's like, listen, when I get there, I need you to trust that I'm going to do everything that I can. And in fact, you might be able to do a much better job. You might be able to bring far more people with you. Or maybe I hike back down the mountain, the but I know the path now and I can help you back up. Correct. Right? Right. Correct. And that's really how we think about the book. It's like, listen, it's, the math is simple, right? The, the process is simple. All those things are simple. But here's what you will have to navigate as you're going up. You're going to see some beers <laughs> once you hit this point. You know, this is when the weather is going to change. This is when uh, the, the oxygen levels are going to adjust. And so you might want to pause a little bit. You know what I mean? The things you can't control, right? The racism, the sexism, the wage gap, the... the exactly. Right, right, right. The capitalism. Exactly. Capitalism, <laughs> like, right? It's another ism. So so, so that's the way that, that, that we think about it. It's not easy, but I do have to remind myself that that is far more effective of a tool than just sort of committing to strap everyone on your back and to carry the weight of that responsibility um, with you while you're climbing, because that can be detrimental to you, to yourself, your own physical well-being. And uh, it's the old cliche of sort of putting on your mask first. I think it's, we, it's, it's relevant. I literally, in and, financial and finance, way, I call it oxygen mask finances. Have you got to put your own oxygen mask on first before you help others. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and by the way, as a as a as a student of of Black history, this is not an, a new issue, right? Like you can go back to uh, studying like Booker T. Washington and W. E. B. Du Bois are two like major historical figures in the Black community, um, and they butted heads on this issue, right? They have very different um, points of view on how we wanted to sort of move the race forward, right? And so this is not new. So if anyone else is dealing with these issues or struggling with that. I'm confident that if you study history, you're going to find other leaders that were before you struggled with the exact same thing. And so you have the benefit of sort of looking at that, maybe reading some of their autobiographies and things like that to see um, what they were thinking. And I think using that as a bit of a, a guide or a cheat code to help you process what you're feeling. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I, I would just echo everything you said. We're all, as Berna says, we're all compromised under capitalism, mm -hmm. but my theory is to focus on the areas that you find to be problematic in your life, right? There are lots of things that I'm annoyed by. There are lots of things I don't like and have opinions about, but my time and my energy goes to the areas that are problematic in my life. And to, to quote another creator, Rachel Rogers, it's really hard to be a feminist if you're broke, yeah. right? It's hard to take the actions that you need to walk away from situations, to support causes, to raise hell and use your voice without feeling like you're risking your livelihood. It's really hard to do that thing, those things if you don't have, you know, this underpinning. Like in the United States, movements require funding, right? Becoming elected as president requires billions of dollars. Like it's not great, but it that's where that's what we're living in right now. It doesn't mean that it can't change. There was a time where 
tulips were the most valuable thing on earth and bananas were like a super important export or import. Like things will eventually change. Again, if you're a student of history, you know that there were wonky beliefs that we've always held as a country that we eventually get rid of. And to me, that's why I'm bullish on the creator economy, because somebody has to put the idea out there. We can't just keep depending on politicians to create these ideas and push society forward. We got to, like you said, meet people where they at. If they on TikTok, well, let me go on TikTok and introduce you to this new concept and what you could be doing and how this has a ripple effect, right? So I, it's a hard question to answer, but I think if we start to think smaller, if we start to think about our neighborhoods, the communities that we can create, whether yeah. they're digital or in real life, we can start to build momentum. This is what grassroots organizers have been doing. It's a long fight. They absolutely knew that Roe was going to be under attack. Why? Because they're grassroots organizers and because the opponents have been saying the same thing for the last 30 years. They just got the stamina and the financial resources to fight a fight for 30 years until they get that shit overturned. We need to be in the same position to do that as well for the things that we care about. You got to have the stamina. You got to have gas in the tank, which requires the financial wherewithal to take breaks as you need them or to walk away from situations that diminish your life. Well, that's cashing out, right? Like, that's the idea. Yeah, my, my neck hurts from like <laughs> nodding incessantly. Yeah, one of the most powerful episodes we've ever done on this podcast was an episode with Amanda Littman, who runs Run for Something, and she worked on Hillary Clinton and Obama's campaigns, and now runs this organization around getting liberals, getting progressive candidates elected in the small elections that actually matter. And we have that whole we have a whole conversation about like presidential election, like yeah, it matters, but like not really. Like it's not really going to affect your day to day, but your schools and your roads and your healthcare and how they're handling COVID and the police, that all matters on a daily basis. And that's the shit, the small elections. She literally explained to us like the coroner is sometimes elected. And so what happened was like, if you elect a coroner who won't say that COVID-19 was the cause of death, they get less ventilators, they get less funding, right? It's like something like that where you're like, I don't, I didn't even think about that. And yeah, to your point, it's, it's all, it's, it's the small stuff. It's the small things. Yeah. It's really getting under the hood of how the country works. <laughs> and when you do, you start to understand like, oh, okay, entrepreneurs, small business owners, creatives, whether you're an artist, a musician, uh, someone who runs a media company online, whatever it is, like you got a lot of power. You just have to realize it, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's the mind fuck is to realize like, oh shit, like there's a reason why groups like the Beatles change the fabric of like culture and what people valued and what people thought was beautiful. So aim to create that. There's so much I want to, I want to talk to you about. <laughs> um, I, one of my last questions, if somebody's listening and I mean, I'm feeling like hyped. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go lift a car. Like if, if somebody's like, <laughs> yes, okay, well, we're going to do it, right? I'm going to overcome these narratives. I'm going to do all of these things. Yet you're also looking at the mountain of capitalism and systemic oppression. <laughs> and you're like, how the fuck do I climb this mountain? <laughs> what do you say to them? Uh, one of two things. Uh, one is uh, so much of what you're feeling, uh, 
I would say the good news, right, is that like this is not a matter of like your intellect, right? This does not require you to develop like expertise. I know specifically as it relates to uh, politics, I have friends who have studied politics and have worked in government, and it's always been a uh, a point of insecurity for me because like I, I don't really know how any of that stuff works. Like, I, I, that is not where I spent my time. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of people feel the same way when it comes to money and or and or entrepreneurship and that sort of thing. Um, but I think it's just reminding people that like courage is far more like of a valuable sort of characteristic uh, and, and sort of power source to tap into than figuring out all of the intricate details or understanding of how any of this stuff works. Um, courage. And I think once you muster up that courage, you'll realize that like time, right, like just having the time to go deep. And when I say deep, like it really doesn't even require that much, like just this much deeper than on a given subject than where you are is enough to create massive change. But you need the time to do that. You need the weekend to just read the book that you've been wanting uh-huh. to read, to watch the film, to go to the library, to attend that conference. And you need money, right? So like, it's just not nearly as complicated as you're probably thinking. Um, and then the second thing, even though this is like 2A, I just get like 1C. <laughs> the second 2A is is to be the anonymous donor. It's very similar to, to what Kirsten was saying. We always tell the story about Dr. King and this time where he got locked up and he was supposed to spend a um, a week in jail. And he uh, only ended up spending two or three days because he was bailed out by anonymous donors. And this would happen on a regular basis. And in this particular story, he was bailed out. And I think the bail was like $78, which in today's dollars would have been something like $1,200, $1,400. So when you look at that and then you think about the percentage of Americans who couldn't even afford a $400 or $500 expense without putting it on the credit card, you really have to think about a different use case for financial empowerment. It's not just so that you can be able to do what you want and go to the gym and travel and do all those things. It's so that you can create the world or the community that you want to be in. Like There were a few people who could afford to pay attention to Dr. King, who could afford to do all of the things that were... Um, that he was preaching and, and really go deep, who could afford to speak the truth without fear of income loss or someone negatively impacting their quality of life. And so all of those things, I think, are justifiable reasons for why you should go a little bit deeper and prioritize financial um, sort of wisdom and courage in your life. And, and I think it's especially important for women, right? Like there, there are very few issues um, that I think are, are bigger than sort of empowering women. Like, again, like, like just the income gap alone is an issue that can be solved. And if we solve for that, like it will fundamentally change the fabric of America. But we need more women to be actively involved. Uh, we need more women to be role models. Uh, we need more women who uh, who have already achieved it to also be uh, sort of warriors and fighters and in the forefront. And so all of those things, I think, are really um great reasons again aside from all the shit that you see on cnbc and like well and and we need we need male allies right we need men absolutely do you know they're the ones unfortunately in the rooms where the decisions are being made right in the locker room when the real Mm -hmm. shit is happening right right so you need people uh you need men to be able to speak up and to enforce uh some of those issues and to help create a new standard Amongst their cohort, or, or well. us as white yeah. people, right? Bringing bringing black folks into the conversation and making sure that there's uh-huh. space for that, right? Uh-huh. That's that's on us. That's not on you. That's on us. Yeah. 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 
I think my answer is slightly different, but if you're the person who's staring at the mountain and you're like, holy fuck, one, <laughs> recognize that there are already people on the mountain. Like it ain't yeah. gonna just be you and the bears out yeah. there. Like get climbing and trust yourself, trust your abilities to, to develop a community or um, a camaraderie or the ability to decipher what kind of decisions you need to make once you're already on the mountain, right? It doesn't matter how many books you read about boxing or <laughs> climbing mountains. That's not how you learn how to fight or climb. Right. You back to the financial literacy thing. Like we're back there, aren't we? <laughs> yeah, like <laughs> you, you got to build that trust with yourself. Like when I'm up there, I'm not just going to give up. Like once I'm on it, I got to either go up or go down one or the other, but I can't just stay there. Right. And then I think the key to coming to that kind of clarity is really, and this hopefully does not sound woo woo, but really focusing on mindfulness, really centering yourself and asking yourself the hard questions, whether it's through journaling, meditation, yoga, whatever your thing is, you really have to uncover what your money beliefs are. And they're tricky because they're they're hidden below the mm -hmm. surface. People will say things like, oh, how is this realistic for me? I only make $40,000. And it's like, well, buried into that sentence is the premise that you think that that's a fixed spot. Like that's a fixed identity. I am somebody who only makes $40,000 versus asking something like, if I needed to make an extra, an extra $20,000 to accomplish what you're talking about, what are some ways I can do it within these schedule constraints? That's a very different question that unlocks far more answers versus you trying to kind of stay in this fixed place and ask a question that's like kind of in like defeatist, right? Mm -hmm. In the sense that like, I don't have enough money to do what you're saying, so I must not be able to do it. And it's like, no, like the answer is that you got to find money. So if you have the belief that you can't find money, that's one of the things that you have to work on once you get on that damn mountain. But get your ass on the mountain. <laughs> like. And that's something that's that's always frustrated me a little bit is, you know, her first 100K's origin story was my own 100K journey of like saving 100K at 25. And that was the headline. That's still the headline in a lot of the stories, right? 25 year old saves 100K. Mm -hmm. And so many people are like, well, I'm not 25, so I, I can't do that, right? Or like 100K is so much money, so I'm not going to do that. Yes, valid, right? Yeah. Like, but you can mm -hmm. take part of what I've learned and part of what I've done. Compound interest works regardless of your age, right? Mm -hmm. Regardless of the amount of money, right? And so, like, yeah, we the timeline may, diff be, right. may be different. Everybody's the timeline is different. And yes, and I talk about, you know, privilege is part of that story. And I acknowledge that 100%. But there's other things that I did. I negotiated my salary, right? I, I started investing. I had a side hustle. These were all things that you could potentially do in your life. Now, it might be, a you know, it's going to look different 100%. It's going to look maybe on a micro level. But you can apply that to your life potentially. Yeah, absolutely. It's understanding that those actions compound as well, right? Once you've asked for more money, it changes the way that you view everything, right? If you ask for more money and get it, your brain changes. And so now you're like, all right, well, what else can I ask for? I'm going to ask for no cheese on this burger. I'm going to ask for, I'm going to send this food back because it's not hot and I'm not satisfied with my purchase. And it just becomes a little thing that empowers you over and over and over again. And so uh, instead of thinking linearly, like, oh, I could never save $100,000 because I don't have the skill set, know that if you start, those skills compound and it's not linear. Yep. You might struggle the first two years, but the next two years, the next three years are like, 
gangbusters. When right? my first like, date shows the... up on the phone, I don't have to. I don't have to see him for a second date because I know my worth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Definitely not something that happened to me recently. No. Um. Yeah. It's like yes, that is, yeah. Like again, I talk about this so much in my book, but like everything is unlocked when you have money, and it's not just like options financially of what you can do with that money it's to your point like you know your worth and every i'm like i need a i need a fucking gavel or something i'm like you know every <laughs> single you know every single situation you don't have to be in in if you don't want to you're like i don't yes. have to do that yeah and that's i mean that's cashing yes. out again right like it's just like i don't yes. have to do that i don't have to do that yeah all the shame that comes with things like cutting a cable bill or uh, returning something because like now you need the money back. Like you don't feel that anymore. I mean, you might feel a little bit, but you know, it's a fleeting feeling. You know that like there's something on the other side that's like worth going oh, I through. I can buy organic bananas and, like, as opposed to, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we still remember the first time we like started shopping organic. We were like, damn. Oh well, shit. Yeah. Okay. Actually, <laughs> okay. Let's, let's make that our last question because I've been thinking about this. Um, what is the thing growing up that you're like, oh, rich people do that? And I'm not even like yachts, but for me it was like, oh, rich people get appetizers. We were a no appetizer family. <laughs> like if you went out, you had dinner and you had water. Like no appetizers, yeah, yeah, yeah. no side dishes, <laughs> no. And I remember that, yeah, the first time ordering an appetizer and being like, what is this? Like it was the height of luxury. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I'm ordering yeah. mozzarella sticks before my actual dinner gets here. <laughs> I was like, could not believe it. I was like, holy shit, this is so exciting. So like, do I you, do you have one of those of like, oh, rich people do this shit. Even if, yeah, it's like yeah. not real. I have several of them. <laughs> One is like taking walks in the middle of the day. Oh, sure. Like, or or sitting at a restaurant like for lunch, like mm -hmm. in a restaurant. And not like taking it and <laughs> eating like it in your car the, or yeah. Yeah, like you're just uh, at a restaurant during the day. That's where you had lunch. I'm used to drive-throughs and shit. Like, it's so no. funny you say that because I will go to Costco at like eleven thirty and I'm like what are all these people doing the here? Best. Don't they have jobs? And then I think to myself, wait, <laughs> I, don't I have a job? I'm here. <laughs> 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 I feel like I'm like 80. I'm like, what are these people doing here? Don't they have jobs? Yeah. And I'm like, wait, what am I? Yeah. <laughs> what am I doing here? <laughs> yeah. Uh, traveling in the middle of the week is another one. Like just leaving on a Tuesday instead of like, you know, waiting till the weekend and cramming your trip in. I got a bunch of them. Yeah. My, mine was restaurants. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And mine was um, red eyes, not having to take the red eye because my parents were like, we're taking the red eye every time. I remember the first again, I remember the first time I actually flew on a plane that was at, like at a reasonable time and we weren't waking up at like two in the morning. Yeah. yeah. My mom just stopped doing that. She used my to take parents 6 a.m. flights. Because they're like, we're too old for this shit. And I'm like, about time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She lives an hour and a half from the airport. So she was waking up at 3.30 in the morning to oh. save like $37 yeah. on Southwest. It's like, ma, just take... <laughs> like, what are you doing? <laughs> but it's, again, ingrained. You're not even... It's not until somebody checks you and is like, you know that don't make no sense. Like... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it might have at one point in your life, and it still might in some of the listeners' lives, but, like, there comes a point where somebody has to, like, kind of shake you if you're not doing it yourself to be like, you know, you could do something a little different. You deserve to sleep in. Yeah. Like, uh. <laughs> um, I appreciate and love you both so much. Thank you for your insights. Where can people find you? You can find us. Uh, where can you find us? <laughs> 
I, I felt like that wasn't gonna go well too. I was like, hey, jump the gun. I did jump the gun. <laughs> Okay, so cashing out, you can get anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, indie stores, wherever. Um, you can find us at richandregular.com. We are also on uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube under Rich and Regular. We have a TikTok, but we haven't used it. So maybe you can convince me after this call. You were like the yeah. TikTok <laughs> in the early 2020. Um, yeah. <laughs> So we'll see. Are you still doing money on the table? Are you guys doing another season? Yes. Okay. Please check out y'all. Go to their YouTube. They have this incredible show that it's like, because Julian's a fucking incredible chef. And they sit down and they make a good meal. And it's like half cooking show, half money show. And it's just, it's so brilliant. I love it. It's my fucking favorite. Oh, thank we'll you. Thank, thank you so you. much. We appreciate you. We're proud of you. Keep yes. fucking crushing it. And um, we, uh, we look forward to seeing what's next thank for you. you. Cool. A huge thank you again to Rich and Regular for joining us. Please make sure to follow and support them. Maybe grab their book for a holiday gift and pair it with a, another copy of Financial Feminist. I don't know. Just saying. Two is better than one. Thanks again for listening to Financial Feminist, the podcast. Please make sure to leave us a review if you're enjoying the show. And don't forget to grab your copy of Financial Feminist, the book out everywhere you buy books in ebook, physical book, and audio format on December 27th. And can't wait to see you back here soon. Catch you later, Financial Feminists. Have a good holiday. Thank you for listening to Financial Feminist, a Her First 100K podcast. Financial Feminist is hosted by me, Tori Dunlap, produced by Kristen Fields, marketing and administration by Karina Patel, Olivia Koning, Sharice Wade, Alina Hilzer, Paulina Isaac, Sophia Cohen, Valerie Oresco, Jack Koning, and Anna Alexandra. Research by Ariel Johnson. Audio engineering by Austin Fields. Promotional graphics by Mary Stratton. Photography by Sarah Wolf and theme music by Jonah Cohen Sound. A huge thanks to the entire Her First 100K team and community for supporting the show. For more information about Financial Feminist, Her First 100K, our guests, episode show notes, and our upcoming book, also titled Financial Feminist, visit herfirst100k.com.